I can't tell you how excited and geeked I am for this episode of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. My guest has obtained an acquittal or acquittals in the biggest trial in history. He represented Michael Jackson, the king of pop, the biggest star ever, and obtained acquittals across the board in the most watched trial ever. He represented Bill Cosby. He's representing Danny Masterson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and he is here on the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. I'm Neil Rockheim. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast, and my guest is Tom Mesereau. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Neil. Really an honor to be here. Uh, I, for you even to say that, I'm going to quote that, and I'm going to put that on my wall. Because it, <laughs> it really is an honor for me to be able to talk to, to you. Well, thank so, you so much. Tom, I have read so much about you and, and all of the cases that you've handled. Um, I, I, in my mind, I'm just going to tell you that I, I have never gotten out of my mind the picture of you walking out of, I think it was one of the, the Jackson, and during the Jackson trial with your book bag and your, your tote bag, and you were just walking out. And I thought, there's a man who means business. So I want to ask you, how did you get into criminal defense? You know, I have to start with my father, who was a West Point graduate and did not go to law school. He took a business law course at West Point, And he always said to me, if you don't know what exactly you want to do in life, please consider law school. It's a great avenue to so many things. And I took his advice. Uh, I thought of not going to law school and being a journalist. I have a master's in international relations, and I thought seriously about it. I interviewed with a number of publications, and I decided to get a law degree. And when I got out of law school, I really didn't know which area of law I should focus on. But true to my father's advice, I had the latitude to try different areas. I began with a big law firm as an associate in Washington, D.C., I was a deputy district attorney for a short period of time. I didn't fit in. I was assistant to the president of an oil company subsidiary where I was supervising law firms around the country and running to different cities and trying to put out administrative and legal fires. And the more I learned about the law and the different ways you can do it, the more I realized I had to find an avenue for a lot of what makes me, and that's compassion and a, a feeling for the underdog uh, I liked the courtroom. I had to learn I liked it. I didn't know for sure. Um, I did take a trial practice class my last semester in law school with a sitting Superior Court judge in San Francisco who told me I had unusual talent and I really should consider it. But I didn't listen to him right away. Uh, eventually his words came back to me and uh, one thing led to another and I'm very lucky that I found the law and I'm very lucky I found criminal defense. Now, you, have you ever written, I, I looked, have you ever written a trial practice book like, you know, cross-examination or opening statements or voir dire by, by Tom Mesereau? I have not. Any reason? Uh, I just didn't bother to do it. I've certainly given some of my views and thoughts from time to time in various articles I've written for legal publications, but I never thought of putting a legal textbook together. I am in the process of writing a form of memoir with a journalist. We've been at it for a while off and on, and I'm going to talk about various cases I handled that I think 
are very in instructive about what you should or should not do and how you should or should not think when you're doing them. Um, but that's sort of uh, something we're doing gradually. I don't uh, haven't chosen a publisher or anything of that sort, but about half that book is written and I will get something out, but uh, no, I never thought of doing a textbook, to tell you the truth. The, the, the reason why I asked that is that um, th there are, I'm sort of a, a, I've read excerpts of your cross-examinations. I've read excerpts of your cross-examinations from the, the Jackson trial. Some are absolutely brilliant. And I've read an article, I think that you, well, you spoke to, maybe it was a speech that turned into an article. I think it was for the is it Cumberland Law School? Cumberland School of Law in Birmingham, Alabama. Very and you had some very school. unconventional um, thoughts that you wanted young aspiring law students or lawyers to think about that maybe sort of went against the grain of how we're traditionally taught to do things. I did do that. Um, and I was very honored to speak at Cumberland. You know, for 24 years, I've handled death penalty and homicide cases in Alabama. And I have a great affection for the state in many ways, uh, the lawyers, the judges. Uh, I, you know, I first started going to Alabama uh, in the late 90s uh, when I agreed to do a death penalty case for free. And I ended up doing a bunch of them and I made some very good friends. And a number of them had gone to Cumberland School of Law, which is an excellent school of law on a hill overlooking Birmingham, one of the most beautiful views you'll ever see. But I was invited there after the Jackson case and I did give a talk and we did turn that into an article. And it's a it great article. It's a, I'm oh. gonna try to put a link to it in the, when we post the, this, this podcast, but it is a great article because it really in some ways, it shatters some of the traditional um, conventional wisdom that we're taught as young lawyers? Well, I am, you know, I'm not hooked into legal education. Uh, so I don't really know what's being taught today. Every once in a while, I'll bump into someone who'll tell me that your views are very controversial in law schools. And you've got people <laughs> that really think you walk on water and the people that can't stand you. And uh, I've heard that a couple of times, but I'm not really uh, clued into what exactly are being taught and if this article is being used in law schools or not. But well, the article. So one of the things that you that you did that you know we're taught, for example, in opening statement in Boadir or opening statement, a lot of lawyers come out with the they come out timidly, almost sort of dancing around with ideas of presum the presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt. And I read your view, or at least why you didn't do that in the Jackson case. And you were defending yes. Michael Jackson, the, probably the biggest celebrity in the history of the world, if you ask me. So, well, you know, let, let, let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, to me, almost any profession in life requires that you learn basic. You have basics. You have to learn fundamentals. There are reasons for learning those basics. There are valid reasons for learning those fundamentals. They're not just taught for, to be taught. And... My assumption is that everybody learns those fundamentals. My assumption is that everyone is bright and everyone knows the law and everyone passed a bar exam. So what makes some trial lawyers better than others? I sat down decades ago and tried to answer that question. And I wasn't quite sure what the answer was. I mean, some people are more charismatic than others. 
but, but, but some very charismatic trial lawyers are not effective. And some rather dull, you know, repetitive trial lawyers are very effective. So it's not just a question of charisma. It's not just a question of dramatics or theatrics, because again, some very theatrical, very dramatic lawyers, in my opinion, are not effective. Some very humdrum sounding and looking lawyers resonate with juries and they get good results. Uh, it's not a matter of articulating perfectly because you can look at the transcripts of lawyers who articulate perfectly and you know it, it, it seems so perfect, but then you look at the results and they don't have very good results. On the other hand, we've had tremendous trial lawyers who sometimes if you look at their examinations, it doesn't look like they put a sentence together right. Um, but they know how to communicate in a real authentic way. They know how to, they know how to get to people's hearts and minds in a very natural way that's natural to them. And I started thinking about this a long time ago. I'm a very prolific reader of trial books. I collect them, I have for 40 years and I'll read them and reread them. I'm talking about memoirs, I'm talking about textbooks, I'm talking about journalists' accounts of trials and what lawyers were doing. Sometimes some of the most insightful books about trial lawyers are written by journalists who are not lawyers. Um, but at any rate, I've, re I read and, I've read and reread these books for so, so long uh, and trying to apply them to everyday life. I really believe that law, uh, trial law is something that's more an art than a science. It's not something that, you know, A plus B equals this. It, 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 it's, it's artistic, it's creative, it's ever-changing, and we're always learning our whole career. And when I see lawyers parading around wanting everybody to think they're the fountain of all wisdom on the courtroom, I sort of <laughs> chuckle because in my opinion, they aren't, because nobody is. We're always learning. We're always trying new things. But something, back to the point I was making, something seemed to differentiate the great ones from the not-so-great ones. And I came to the conclusion that uh, trying to put things into some general principles, the great ones knew who they were. They were comfortable with who they are or were. They learned how to present themselves, you know, just as they are without any embellishment or any artificial theatrics, that kind of thing. And I also decided they took chances. Now, if you play it safe in the courtroom, you'll never get embarrassed. You'll never ask a question across examination you don't know the answer to. You'll follow all the rules. You'll make sure that you're never embarrassed, but you won't win the big ones either. There are cases that can, you can make or break with some of the risks you take. And on the other hand, if you take risks, you can also get burned big too. And I've had that happen in my career like I've had some, some good wins. So I think it's a question of how good you wanna be uh, how much you want to learn about yourself and others, because insight into people is very important. And we don't get insight into people in law school at all. It's a very intellectual exercise. Um, we have to like people. We have to care about people. We have to study people, feel people, uh, develop our intuitive abilities, our, instinct, our instincts for courtroom success uh, are things that are somewhat innate, but also can be developed. Uh, you're always dealing with spontaneous situations that you didn't plan for and you have to react. Um, put all this together and I think the things that make the difference between the good ones and the not so good ones are knowing themselves, 
presenting themselves in, a, in an authentic way, studying hard at what they do and taking risks. So let me ask you, one of the, you've written or it has been written that in the, the Michael Jackson case in which you obtained uh, an acquittal on his behalf. And I know you believe, um, and from what I've seen, it appears as though he's innocent in that case. And you've stood by that, that proclamation Yes. Um, from that all, all the way up until to, up until today. Yes. You, one of the, the the questions that you have written about or that has been described as critical, maybe a turning point in the case, even the most important question that you asked in the case of all of the I don't know how many days the trial went on, but it was a, it was it was weeks. Right. It went five months. And you asked the question, why? Yes, that was the principal accuser. Uh, I had the accuser on cross-examination and I didn't believe these charges for one second for a lot of reasons. And I knew that he and his family had tried to be very close to Michael Jackson and they were close for a long period of time. And he was taking care of the family and being the generous guy he always was. And then at one point he wanted to get away from them and he began to distance himself and they began to get frustrated. They were spending a lot of time at Neverland uh, where Michael lived. And he was, again, very kind and generous to them in many different ways. And they began to get very frustrated and upset with him. And to make a long story short, I started cross-examining this accuser and began to have him go into the reasons he was upset or frustrated with Michael. And I said, at one point, you were mad at Michael Jackson at this point, weren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he rattled off a whole number of things, but the thing he left out was being molested. It's unbelievable. No, you know, was... what's, what's amazing about that is that we're always, we're taught time and time again, not to, you know, ask the question why. Well, and there's a good reason for that, because if you ask an open-ended question like that, you invite the witness to just respond with a whole parade of horribles about why the other side should win and you should lose. Uh, you would just open the door for almost anything. Um, but I'll tell you something else, asking a why question can also force the witness to reveal who they are. And I think sometimes lawyers miss the human component of a trial. There are some people you want the jury to see who they are. And if you don't ask probing questions and let people talk, nobody finds out who they are. Now, sometimes you may have a witness or even a client you're not exactly wild about revealing everything about them because they have a hard edge where they don't seem to come across well. And you may try to restrict them in your examination, whether it's direct or, or whether you're cross-examining someone. But if you think the jury needs to know who your client is, or the jury needs to know who an accuser is on cross, you got to get them to talk. Yes or no questions don't tell anybody anything. Or, or excuse me, yes or no answers don't tell right. anything. But it's scary people, for lawyers who want to be in total control to ask an open-ended question or let the witness talk. Because again, you're, you don't know what they're going to say. You know, I had a sexual assault trial years ago in Los Angeles. I really felt my client was completely innocent. He was the nicest person on the planet. He was an auto mechanic. And he loved to just talk and talk and talk. And he was so likable in everything he said and did, a very kind person. And I put him on the stand and I asked, you know, tell the jury about your background. 
And he went on and on about it. I fixed this car and I love this car. And then I see, oh, by the way, I saw this guy the other day. He had the greatest car. I hadn't seen a car like that in so long. You know, I went up to him and I said, and he wouldn't stop talking. And finally, the prosecutor who thought initially he was going to damage himself began to realize, oh my God, he's taken over the courtroom. So the prosecutor started to object, you know, to, to I mean, you can't just follow the fundamentals or the basics, which right. are abstract principles. And you, you've got to dig into the humanity in the courtroom. What is so when your- you asked, When you asked the, the, that principal accuser the question, why? Yes. Was that on the fly or was that something that you just, was that instinct? Was that, that was something instinct. that you planned out ahead of time? That was instinct. I had not planned it at all. No, I just, I just didn't think these charges were, were, were valid charges. I didn't think this person really truly believed this had happened to them. I felt there are a lot of reasons why this person was saying this and maybe believing it at the time in, 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 in his own way. But nevertheless, I felt there were real deep emotional reasons why they were mad at Michael at that point, And this was not one of them. So do you, I, when you go through a, a case like that, Tom, do you have, do you have notebooks and outlines and things that you're using, or do you have some other way to keep all the information uh, in no, front of What you? I typically do is, is I, I'd like for every witness or potential witness, I like to have three ring binders. I'd like every document that refers to that witness whatever the document may be in alphabetical, excuse me, in chronological order, okay? And the documents could be police reports, they could be interviews, they could be newspaper articles, they could be anything. FBI 302s, they could be, you name it. I want them in chronological order because the more you go over them, the more you see patterns or breaks in patterns. You'll see testimony change, you'll see testimony become possibly embellished. You'll see new things pop up here while something else is happening that might have a connection to it. And the more you go over that chronological compendium of documents, the more you see things that might provide good avenues for cross-examination. So that's how I start. But I don't write out my questions like I did as a young lawyer. Um, I, I'll put a word, I'll put a topic. Uh, what I do is in my notebooks, I have certain phrases yellowed out, I have tabs, and I've gone over it enough, and I've gone over things in my mind enough that when I see a certain tabbed item or, or yellowed item, it triggers a question. And that's kind of how I do it. So I read, and tell me if this is true, and if you can, you know, that for one of the witnesses in the, because I, I view you as a, as a lean into the case type lawyer, not a a shy away from the case type lawyer. Um, and I, I say that because I know there was a moment where you had, you were ready to, I read attack. I mean, I don't say attack, but go after a witness and the way the witness came across on direct examination, you decided to get 20 binders or ready to go. And you just pushed them aside and did something different. Did that I read that correctly? Jackson. That was Michael Jackson's ex-wife. And she was supposed to be a bombshell witness for the prosecution. And they were not speaking. And she had been involved in a number of interviews with the prosecution that suggested at least the way they summed up these interviews that maybe she wouldn't be terribly helpful. And 
I remember waking up that morning and getting dressed and putting on Good Morning America, and they were announcing this was supposed to be a bombshell witness, blah, blah. And so I had, they had been, been through some messy divorce proceedings. I had every document in those divorce proceedings, you know, whether it was a declaration, whether it was a statement of financial condition, whatever it was, objections by the attorney, I had everything again in chronological order, and it was 20 volumes worth. I had my yellow tabs, you know, in every volume and things yellowed out that I, were, I was going to make a question out of if I had to. Um, and she came into the courtroom, I'll never forget it. She got on the witness stand. She looked over at Michael and I saw her whole demeanor change. And she almost looked horrified, you know, as if, you know, what am I doing here? What, what, am I, what are they asking me to do? And she turned out to be a terrific witness for Michael Jackson, but very sensitive, very fragile in a, in a certain way. And I decided I was not going to attack. I was not gonna use a single document in those 20 binders. I was gonna ask her some very softball questions about Michael and she described him as a wonderful father and being taken advantage of by people around him and it couldn't have gone better. And I remember the next morning, again, getting dressed, looking at Good Morning America and the lead story was, did a key prosecution witness blow up in their face? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know I, I learned later on because I was living in somewhat of a cocoon, you know, trying this case for five months working, you know, I'm the type of guy at trial, I get up about three or 3.30. I like to go to bed very early. And then I like those morning hours when everything is so still and peaceful. And I'm waking up with my pot of coffee. And I just, to me, that's a, that's a wonderful time to just prepare for the day. Um, I, you know, in my cocoon for that trial, I didn't realize what people, my colleagues were saying. And after the trial, I found out everyone thought that I, basically I had, can, I had set them up and that I'd been in touch with the witness and knew what the witness was gonna do and they didn't and they just made him, I, I didn't set anybody up and I didn't control <laughs> anything. I was as shocked as everybody else was, but I responded accordingly. Tell me, um, so what, what cross-examination that, first of all, did, did you get voir dire? I know people in the South call it voir dire. Did you get voir dire in the, in the case, in, uh, in the Jackson case? We did. We did. With restrictions. It was like, I think we had about 30 minutes we could do voir dire. It wasn't very long. And I had about four or five questions that I asked everyone about. I wanted to find, I basically was challenging people. Could they stand up to the media? Could they make their own decision? You know, did they understand how important our system was that the rules be followed, that everyone deserves a fair trial? I had about four or five questions that were key to me trying to understand who these people were, but so I did when challenge you, When you them. talk to them, do you listen to their, what, what clues you in? Cause you get a lot of jurors that sort of just, you know, repeat the, they see the judge over there and they want to say something revealing, like, I don't, I, I can't be fair, but the judge beats down their pre, you probably, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, juror number five said something a moment ago and the judge just, you know, beat him down and said, you don't think he deserves a fair trial and you don't think a person should have to, you know, and then the next jurors, of course, are all cowering because the judge has intimidated them from, from speaking their minds. Well, everyone's going to say they're fair unless they're trying to get off a jury. Then they'll, they'll make up something, how unfair they are, how, how biased they are, and everyone can see what they're doing. But I wanted, you know, I wanted to ask people questions like, did you, do you think children will lie? 
do you think, have you ever seen parents induce their children to lie or encourage their children to lie? Have you ever seen someone tell a lie so often they start to actually believe it and think they're telling the truth? I, I did things like that uh, as Great. well as as well did you as get the an, did you get answers that that you felt did you get anybody that that disagreed with you that said I don't think children would lie or I don't believe a parent would put their kid up to that or couldn't I don't recall that but certainly some people were more powerful in their response than others were and and I felt those people were educating the others and I tried to set the stage as early in the trial as possible for what we were there to prove and again that's another point we may want to talk about in this discussion is are our defense lawyers just out to so doubt or are they out to prove something no that and 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 I, it's a terrific segue because i and i want to say something in your article and i know you said this a few moments ago in the the presentation you gave you 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 weren't telling people to do this to copy you you were just saying that there are other ways to think about some of this stuff and you were trying to challenge us to think about sort of maybe doing things differently as a way to, to, to maybe expand our role. And well, you're about to you touch on in, 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 in an opening, I'm gonna kind of give it over to you. You, you tell us what, what you were talking about right there. I know what you're talking about, but I wanna hear it from you. Well, in terms of opening statement, this is the early stages of a trial, whether it's a short trial or a long trial. And first impressions can be lasting impressions to a lot of people. People will change their impressions uh, if they have reason to do it. But I think first impressions are important. And I said to myself many years ago, we've been taught to walk on eggshells in opening statement. Be very careful you don't present something that you can't back up in the trial. Don't make a statement that a witness is gonna say this if you're not so sure if that witness is actually gonna be available or say it. Don't give an argument about your client's innocence uh, and prepare yourself with a prosecutor in closing argument to say, remember Mesero said that in his opening? Well, he didn't really follow through with that. So we're taught to be very careful, uh, extra sensitive about something we can't back up. And then I said to myself years ago, how many prosecutors have I seen give a powerful opening statement where they point at the defendant and say, that person did counts one, two, three, four, and five. You know, and they'll do it with passion, they'll do it with conviction. You know, have you ever heard of a jury going into jury deliberations and saying to themselves, you know, that prosecutor said he was gonna prove counts one, two, three, four, and five. I think he may have proved count one, but he didn't prove two, three, four, or five. He lied to us, we're gonna acquit on everything. <laughs> Have you ever heard of anything like that? I haven't. <laughs> I haven't either. If it doesn't apply to them, why shouldn't it apply to a, to a defense attorney? If you have a good faith belief that you intend to do something in your opening statement, if you have a good faith belief that the evidence will allow some logical and good faith conclusions that, that are helpful to you, why should you not just spell them out in an opening statement where first impressions are so important and proceed on that basis. If they're not gonna hold prosecutors to that standard, why are they likely gonna hold you to it? And it just didn't make sense to me that defense attorneys were either waiving opening statement or giving very lighthearted opening statements when prosecutors were tearing up the turf and not being afraid of some of these counts were very weak. Right, 
And I hear the, the, there are the lawyers who start off with reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence. And I, and I, and I understand that that's, that's a safe play, but boy, it certainly seems like you could lose some jurors who think, you know, he's sort of hiding behind a technicality. He's not oh, giving us I, the story. I never mentioned burden of proof. I never mentioned reasonable doubt. I never mentioned presumption of innocence. I fear that your typical juror will say that's a fancy lawyer hiding behind technicalities, hiding behind legal concepts. And I think they want to know what the truth is. <coughs> Excuse me. And they think the lawyers know the truth. Now, sometimes the lawyers really don't, but they think we do. And they think there's only one truth, not two truths. Lawyers think, you know, there's a prosecution case and a defense case, or there's a plaintiff's case and there's a defense lawyer's case. No, to the jurors, there's one case, and it has to do with what happened, what's the truth. So they think we know it. And if you get up right away and start hiding behind or looking like you're hiding behind legal technicalities, I think it hurts your credibility. I don't think it's a good way to start. In the Jackson case, I got up and told them I was gonna prove that he was innocent. And I told them if I don't do it, hold it against me in the end, because I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna prove this man is innocent. Now, we got to closing argument, and what do you think the prosecutor did? Because I'd said there were some witnesses I would call, but during a five-month trial, things change. And actually, at the very beginning, everybody thought it would be eight or nine months. And I thought we were doing well, and so I cut down on the defense witnesses, some of whom I'd said I was going to call in my opening statement. So the prosecutor began his closing argument by basically talking about Mesero's lies, the things he said he was going to do that he didn't do. And he went through his closing argument. I then had my chance under California law to do my closing, and then he had a chance for rebuttal. I got up for my closing, and the first thing out of my mouth were words to the effect, ladies and gentlemen, I've been in this business for a while. When a prosecutor begins a closing argument by attacking the lawyer, you know they're in trouble. Love it. And Love it. It, it rattled them to the point where he got up to do his rebuttal, they had another chart, Mesereau's lies, and he quickly basically took it down. I think I they actually put it up. They had changed their strategy. It's, but, I, I bet. But it's look, funny because I, and it, but you did mention reasonable doubt in your, in the, closing. your closing on behalf yeah. of Michael Jackson, right? Yes. And the way I did that was the following. I told the jurors, look, you are, you are pledged to follow the law. You're under oath to follow the law. And our judge has told you what the law of reasonable doubt is that you must follow. Now I must explain it to you. And that's how I did it. What, what cross-examination? So one of the cross-examinations that I thought that you, I mean, there are so many in the Jackson case that I thought were brilliant. And that's a compliment from me to you. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I thought you totally destroyed Martin Bashir's credibility as a, as a journalist and um, that, that was my opinion and my observation. And obviously the jury um, uh, sided with, with you and, and, and found uh, Michael Jackson to be, um, you know, they acquitted him. Um, but there were others. And one was you actually, another one that was really significant to me was you actually confronted, I believe it was the principal accuser in the case. And he ended up blaming the court reporter for a contradiction that you that you caught him in? I don't recall the blame on the court reporter. It may have happened. I just don't quite I think it was, a, it was on a plane 
and he had talked about a, 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 a red cup with a circle around it. I do remember that. And, and at one point he said, I never said that. She got it wrong. I think I now remember what you're talking about. Yes, that was, that was a plane flight. And the prosecution was trying to show that Michael Jackson had a habit of giving alcohol to underage kids. So they were trying to say that he wanted the flight attendant, as I recall, to give wine, which allegedly he called Jesus juice to a child. And that's right. Um, I think the, uh, I think when we were contradicting the accuser's words, I think he did blame. And I read it and, and said, you said, well, I want to show it to you. Do you see that? And then I believe the witness said she got it wrong. And you were so quick on your feet, Tom. You said, she got it wrong? The court reporter? Because, yeah, she got it wrong. And you said, do you know what she does? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you just basically, anytime a witness blames the court reporter, you've sort of won that a significant battle. You've moved the, the, the you know, in my opinion, you've moved the ball down the field. So what cross-examination really stood out for you in the Jackson case that you thought was one of those, the pivotal turning point in the case? Well, I think my cross-examinations of the family of accusers were critical. Uh, a couple of journalists told me later on that everybody could have packed up and gone home once those examinations were done. They felt that these were the key witnesses in the case and they just didn't have the credibility that you needed to prove a case like this. Um, so I think I cross-examined the mother, I cross-examined the two brothers, and I cross-examined a sister. And they all were very different kinds of people and all required a different sort of touch in, in terms of how you went forward with what you were gonna try to impeach them with. Um, and I, they, they had different personalities in my opinion. And again, I think trial lawyers, if they wanna excel, have to study people. I mean, as, as time went on in my evolution as a trial lawyer, I stopped taking as many notes on cross-examination and, and just opened my fingers so I could feel the energy and basically would look at the witness and feel what I felt and see what I saw of the witness. And that I discovered was more important to me than taking a bunch of notes. Which I hate watching way, lawyers turn into it. scribes. I can't stand it when they got their their head down and they're they've got their sheet of paper with the two lines, you know, in the middle, and they start to they're just writing everything down. And I'm wondering, what are you writing down? You should already pretty much know this. You're, it's much more important to study the person, feel the person, get a sense of where they're exaggerating or where someone may have helped them phrase what they're saying what seems artificial, what seems contrived, what seems self-serving. Uh, find out who the person is and go to work in a very natural, intuitive, instinctive way, combined with all the preparation you've done, all the impeachment material you have. Uh, I think it's, a, again, it's a creative process. Uh, you're, you're painting a portrait you haven't really painted before. You're doing it in the in the light of the courtroom and with everyone watching you, it's a different type of process than we're taught in law school. But we were not taught in law school how to study people, how to feel people, how to understand them. We're taught to take notes 
and we're taught to uh, regurgitate. We're taught to, you know, fill our brain with concepts and facts, all of which is extremely important, but none of which particularly trains you to be a spontaneous trial lawyer in the courtroom. And again, you're going to get burned if you take risks. And I've been burned a number of times and it didn't feel good. Um, but I'd rather take my chances and go for a win than just do everything safe and nice and right and not be effective. I, are you, um, are you comfortable? Can I ask you about any of those, those moments where you felt like you got burned? Cause you've mentioned that a couple of times. Well, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I can't think of any at the moment that, that stand out, but if you ask why questions or you ask how questions, um, if you ask, you know, someone to explain why they said what they said or why they did what they did, you are giving them a tremendous amount of latitude. You've got to have maybe other purposes in mind. Now, maybe you don't mind if they burn you a little bit, if in the process, they give you information that leads you in some other directions that are valuable to you, which leads me to some other, another point. I think good cross-examiners, if they see a, they're, they're on, a, on, a, on a point, if they hear a witness or see a witness, give them something that can take you another direction, it's good. You wanna go that direction, but you always want to at some point return to the point you left. So good cross examiners have a, a way of compartmentalizing things in their head. So they'll go off on a tangent they think may help them that may have sprung up by surprise. Uh, they'll take it as far as they can and they will always return to that point they were trying to develop. Did you have a feel by the time you were closing the case in the Michael Jackson case that you were going to win? I was very positive, but, you know, it's hard to just say I'm going to win this in a criminal case where the allegations are so horrific. I mean, remember what these allegations were. They were conspiracy to abduct children, to falsely imprison a family, and to commit criminal extortion. Then you had the molestation allegations. And you also had allegations that a cancer-stricken child was plied with alcohol to prepare that child to be molested. I mean, these were ugly, serious, horrifying allegations. And the emotions surrounding allegations like this, you know, are, are very, very problematic for a defense attorney as you walk in and try and dispel these things. Um, and you don't know those 12 jurors. You never met them before. They all come from different backgrounds. You tried to read them as best you can when you were in selection, but you don't know who's going to dominate and who's going to have more stamina in the, in the, in the, in the deliberation room. And, you know, there's so many imponderables. So to say, I got this one is, is are you, rarely are you did. watching the jurors during the trial or are you focused on the witness or are you, I, I find myself for whatever reason, when I'm in trial, um, I somehow have developed the ability to sort of, I feel like to see it all, but I always have somebody there sort of watching what I'm not really focused on at that moment. How about you? Well, I, I, I do what you do. Um, I, I also look over periodically, not in any intense way. You don't want to offend anybody or make anyone uncomfortable. You don't want to be that guy, the lawyer staring at one of the jurors like this. Just... I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> um, but I certainly look at them from time to time, and, and especially if the prosecution is examining a witness, you know, you're looking at the witness, you're looking at the jury, you're looking back at the witness, you know, um, when you're focused asking your questions, I don't turn and look at the, at the jury very much. I really don't. 
Um, when when the jury returned a when they came back when it was announced that they, how long was the jury out? They were out eight days. So did the that eight days did that embolden you? Because there's you know there's all the the old wives tales about what lengthy deliberations mean versus not versus questions. Did you engage in any of that sort of self? You know, you're always you're always waiting on edge for something to happen, whether it's a question, whether it's a verdict. Um, whatever it is, this was a five month trial. So to have them out for a week really suggested they were looking over everything very carefully. I never read too much into it. I'll tell you a story you may not know. Uh, the jury went, started deliberating on a Friday. They went through the whole next week and the following Monday came back with their verdict. The Saturday after the Friday, they went out to deliberate the prosecution had a victory party at a local restaurant where all the investigators and the DAs and the police officers, the sheriffs were having a great meal and drinking. And I thought it was bizarre that they would have the temerity to do that in the middle of jury deliberation. But again, you asked me about the Jackson case. Remember, this was the most watched trial in world yes, history. Yes, it was. And during those eight days of jury deliberation, the media were trying to spin a conviction. So the major networks were showing, so, I mean, every at least every couple of hours, they were showing the jail cell they, they said he was gonna go to. They were talking about what his life would be like in jail, you know, wh what time he would have to get up and what he would have to eat and what books he could read and who could visit him. And I mean, the, in my opinion, the media's attempt to prejudice the jury while they deliberating was outrageous. So you never know what all this craziness will do uh, to a jury. So was I confident? I was, as I said before, I severely cut back on the number of witnesses we were gonna call. Uh, I mean, when the prosecution rested, I had had so many good days on cross-examination, I had to give serious thought to whether we even put on a defense. Hmm. But you and did I, put on a defense in the case. We did, I, I came to the conclusion that we would probably hang if we rested and didn't put on a defense that we had to really tell our story and address some of these horrible allegations by the prosecutors. So I decided to put on a defense, even though that's always risky because your witnesses are now subject to cross-examination and there were very good prosecutors in the case. Um, but in the middle of our case, I said to myself, we're doing awfully well. And I think this jury is getting tired and I think it's time to cut our list short get this to the jury. And unfortunately, I was correct. The, the prosecution put on a very short rebuttal. Uh, I considered putting on some type of rebuttal and didn't do it. Um, and got it to the jury after about four and a half, five months. And fortunately, how did you, how did you discover that the police officers and prosecutors were, or maybe the police officers, I think, and investigators were out for a big what sounds like the way you described it, my, my mind is like a celebratory dinner, like, you know, where they're all kind of clinking glasses, like from it the was, Untouchables. It was. There were a couple of journalists that attended it. One of them called me up and told me about it. I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, that's bad karma. That, what, what are they doing that for? Like I mean, John McEnroe, are you watching the same match that I just played? <laughs> you didn't see me celebrating any place. I was right. just, uh, in, in seclusion. And you've continued to your credit, to defend Michael Jackson, even after the verdict and posthumously? I still do. I mean, I, I don't think the man was good for any of these charges. 
I think it was a horrendous miscarriage of justice to go after him on charges like this. I think that anyone who really looked at that evidence day in and day out would have to wonder why did they bring this crazy case? Uh, I think they brought it because they thought the environment was so prejudiced against him. They thought he was such an odd looking character. Uh, he was such a controversial character. They thought they were in a very conservative locality with an extremely high conviction rate in that courthouse that they thought all of these, all of these forces would come together and give them the biggest victory of their careers. Do you, now I know you, you, you represented um, Bill Cosby. Was it in the, it, was it in his second trial? Yes, it was the second trial. So I, I don't want to get into the names of any of the accusers or any of the witnesses, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about that was really, I think that was maybe the first trial in the Me Too, it's, a, it's about time era. Um, yes, it was. What was it like trying that case with that high profile of a celebrity, particularly everyone knowing that you had represented Michael Jackson and obtained an acquittal with Harvey Weinstein, and he shouldn't have even been mentioned, but every article had you know, Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein sort of tied together. Um, what was that like and how did you attempt to overcome the sort of the baked in public, I'll just say prejudice, prejudgment? Well, uh, you, the way you've described the environment is absolutely correct. It was a very prejudicial environment for any defense in a case like that. And basically, we had to hope the jury would see through this. But as you probably know, trial was highly unfair. It was the most unfair trial of my career. The judge in, in the first trial of Bill Cosby, the judge had allowed one unrelated accuser in addition to the main accuser to testify. When we showed up for a second trial, he upped that number of unrelated accusers from one to five. Now why, in a, this, the charges were directed at one particular alleged victim. Why, in addition to the evidence surrounding that allegation, why would you allow people from 20 and 30 years ago to come in and say, oh, by the way, he did this to me or he did that to me? Charges you can't investigate, you can't find forensic evidence, you can't find witnesses. People change over decades in their life. Witnesses change, people change, you name it. Why did they have to bring in five unrelated accusers who had nothing to do with the case? And the reason was, in my opinion, the judge wanted a conviction. He didn't so, want to follow the law. He wanted a conviction. Let, let's talk about that a little bit, if I could, because I want to set the table a little bit, because um, in my mind, a retrial, I know that there are, I've had cases where the prosecutor, after a mistrial, comes in in the, in the, in the, the retrial, the second trial, with newly discovered evidence or information that they hadn't known. But this wasn't newly discovered. And it wasn't evidence related specifically to this accuser, right? No. So no, and it, to me, it was nothing more than a character assassination. Uh, it was an attempt to bolster the underlying case with unrelated information, information that's very difficult to refute because, again, some of it was 20 and 30 years old. But that's the way they were operating. And as you know, Mr. Cosby's conviction has been thrown out. He cannot be re-prosecuted. What happened to him was a travesty of justice. Even the Pennsylvania Supreme Court used the term bait and switch in describing how he was unfairly treated. 
because a prior DA had made an agreement not to prosecute him. And based on that agreement, Mr. Cosby, I, was, I didn't know him then, I wasn't one of his lawyers, had testified in, his, in a related civil deposition. And the next DA then decided to throw out the agreement not to prosecute and use the deposition in a criminal case. And thank God for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, they had the professionalism and the courage and the integrity to see this for what it is, a bait and switch. I mean, it was a complete misuse of the judicial process. You had a judge and a DA that were not following the law. And I think they're waking up pretty embarrassed today. Over what Tom, they did. Were, there, were there moments in that case where the, from your perspective, the prosecutors had, I don't wanna say you have a playbook because that would be a total disservice to the way that you approach cases, but that they had an idea of some of the things that you might do from the cases you've tried and won in the past and then tried to get in front of it and tried to stop you from doing them in, this, in that trial? You know, I don't know if they did that or not. I assume they did. But you know, every trial is unique. Every case is different. You know, to try and, you know, go from one case to another and say, this is gonna work the same way is, is usually something that's kind of futile. So I don't particularly care if they study what I've done and try and predict what I've done because I think of myself as pretty unpredictable for the most part. Could you, I'd like you to walk through for those who are not, because we get listeners who aren't lawyers and who aren't law students, who are just people interested in, in trials. And, and really my, my belief about trial lawyers is, is that people like you are the last great storytellers because we don't really have the new storytellers anymore because they, they're, they're not. We don't have the Edward R. Moreau's and you know what I mean? The, the Peter Jennings and Ted Koppel's we have, we don't have them. Um, would you would you talk talk us through what is four four B? That's a technical rule. You call them unrelated accusers. Talk us through how the in in some way it's fair for the prosecutor to introduce witnesses who are going to point the finger at your client in that case, Bill Cosby, and say that they too were victimized, but it's not character assassination. Not, not by the judge's definition, at least. It's one of the great fictions in the law. It's almost embarrassing to listen to a trial judge instruct the jury, this is not being introduced to show evidence of bad character. This is being introduced to show a pattern of conduct or absence of mistake or whatever they like to say. And you know darn well that it's being used to show bad character. That is, it's being used to prejudice the jury against the defendant. There's no other way to look at it. and. In that case, as I said before, the judge decided to allow five women who had nothing to do with the underlying case, some of them had allegations 20 and 30 years old, to have them come in and testify to what they claim Bill Cosby did to them. And the first trial had one of them, and that ended in a hung jury. So the judge decided in the second trial to up it from one to five. Was that a judge trying to be fair? I don't think so. That was a judge trying to prejudice the jury any way he could against the defendant. Um, what, what, was, what was it like um, during that trial with that particular judge? And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm aiming towards this topic. Was he a difficult judge to try a case in front of in your opinion? And if, it, and if he was or he wasn't, how do you deal with difficult judges that try to get in your way? Well, he tried to appear very amiable and very friendly to everybody. 
But I learned very early in the case that he was out to help the prosecution, in my opinion. And my response to that was to load up with four appellate lawyers on our team, have them file objections on a daily basis, supported by points and authorities. We moved for umpteen mistrials. I think we moved for like 13 or 15 mistrials. Um, I wanted to perfect the appellate record as best we could because I saw what this judge was trying to do. In my opinion, he was not there to be fair. A real judge is a neutral arbiter. A real judge is neutral, tries to give each side a fair trial, doesn't see themselves as having a stake in the outcome. This was exactly the opposite of that, in my opinion. He was out to get a conviction. It was the biggest case of his career. Um, so he tried to act like he was amiable and likable, but he really, in my opinion, was not. Uh, the first thing I did, as I said before, was make sure we had the best appellate record on the planet, which we really did. I've never tried a criminal case which had a better, better appellate record than this one. And it, def and it paid off, as you can see. Um, the other thing is you try to, you know that jurors respect judges, you know, and, and you can't lose sight of that. They tend to look at judges to guide them in ways that they may not be terribly comfortable with, but you also have to stand your ground as well. And I tried to be respectful of the court, respectful of everyone in the courtroom, respectful of the procedures, but make my points too. You can make points without being overly hostile. Uh, you've got to show respect as much as you can. And by the way, there are jurors, if they see a judge running wild on one side, they may not like it either. Um, but I think jurors tend to want to look up to a judge if they can. So you've got to make your record, be forceful, be aggressive, but always do it within the context of respect for the court and respect for the process. What's the longest trial you've been in? Well, there were, the, the Jackson trial was five months. I did do a public corruption trial in Oakland, California, which is near San Francisco. It's Northern California in the Alameda County Superior Courthouse. That was a public corruption trial. That went five months too. But there were longer breaks in the middle of that five month period, probably the Jackson trial. What's the shortest trial you've done? Well, I've done some civil trials too, some bench trials, you know, um, that were relatively short, a few days. Um, I guess, this, I guess I'm, I'm asking like the shortest jury trial you've had. I mean, I. I imagine you as sort of a big case, bet the farm, bet the company type lawyer. That's how I view you. Um, and usually those are not, you know, your shoplifting case or your, your well, driving while suspended case. No, I've tried juvenile cases, you know, in front of judges, not juries in California that lasted a day or a couple of days. I've tried, as I said before, civil cases um, that lasted a few days. Uh, I've tried plenty of misdemeanor cases. That didn't. That were jury trials that lasted a few days. So I've I've run the gamut. It's not just big cases. Have you ever had a cross examination of a witness that you extended purposely to the end of the day to get to put some of the bad stuff that maybe the witness had said behind behind you so that you can come back strong the next morning? I have done that. I don't know generally how effective that is. I don't think there's any way of determining how effective it is, but I've also had co-counsel come to me and say, take him 20 more minutes because then we can regroup and come back in the morning. Yes, lawyers do that all the time. Is okay. it really that effective? I don't know the answer to that, but yes, I've done that. 
So the reason why I ask about long trial versus short trials, I think that in a longer trial, I want to see what your opinion is about this. In a longer trial, you have the opinion to create that contrast between you and the judge and to show the judge being unfair to you or to show that you're really the person who has deserves to be considered the, 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 the truth teller, the truth seeker. In a shorter trial, it's very difficult. You come in and the trial, you know, the judge says, we're going to be out of here by 4.30 in a short one witness trial. It's harder, in my opinion, to sort of show that contrast. Do you agree or, or disagree with that? I do agree. And of course, an opening statement is going to be more important in a shorter trial than a longer one. Um, but yes, I do agree with what you're saying. I think sometimes it takes a number of days and a number of witnesses for the jury to really see who you are, which raises another related point. I always tell people you've got to be who you are. You can't be a fake. You can't be just some theatrical actor. You have to be a real person. You have to be you. And it, I always supplement that statement with the idea that if you are a fake and maybe a good fake, you may pull it off for a few days, but after a couple of days, the jury's gonna see who you are. You're not gonna put on an act that long. So be who you are from day one. So tell me a couple of things. What cases are you, are you involved in, are you currently handling now? I'm defending Danny Masterson, an actor from the 70s show in a very serious case. He's a wonderful client, wonderful person. I don't want to talk about too much about it. No, no. I, and what, how about, and I know that you do donate your time or you, you, you do pro bono work. I think it's once a one capital case a year in Alabama. Well, for the last 24 years, uh, I've been doing at least one murder case pro bono uh, in the deep South. I, some of them have been death penalty cases. Some of them have been capital cases where the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty. And some of them have been straight murder cases. I did do one pro bono death penalty case in the state of Mississippi years ago too. Unfortunately, one of my dearest friends, attorney Charles Salvaggio passed away last fall, which I'm still shocked. I can't believe it happened when he was 66 years old. Hmm. And he was the best known criminal defense lawyer in Birmingham, Alabama. And he and I had a rule we would do at least one a year. I would come down on my own dime, pay my own expenses and do it pro bono. So we were planning to do the next one. Of course, COVID hit and that would have been a problem. But nevertheless, um, that's shaken up my whole, you know, expected annual trip to Birmingham. I have some other friends that do cases too. I may have to talk to them about whether they like some help. I'm but sorry yes, that I, you lost a dear friend. That's uh, that's pretty young. Uh, very young. And I jogged every day, lifted weights. And uh, the last person I thought was going to pass away at 66. But so I'm still recovering from that one. But he, he and I tried all kinds of murder cases in Alabama, some of them in Birmingham, some of them in Bessemer, about 40 minutes outside of Birmingham. Some very memorable cases. I mean, he occupies a major chapter in my life and career. I also have a free legal clinic, the Mesero Free Legal Clinic that operates in South Central Los Angeles um, at a African-American church. Uh, two Saturdays a month, lawyers, law students, college students, activists donate their time to help local people with problems, whether they're civil, legal problems, criminal problems, whatever they are, they're welcome to come in and we counsel them. And sometimes we take cases, sometimes we just give counseling and direction. People are always free to come back. And it's something I've done for many decades.
decades. I used to donate my time to free legal clinics at black churches in Los Angeles, the First African Methodist Episcopal Church. And uh, there was an organization called Save Our Sons, an organization formed by black mothers whose sons were in prison. I used to work with that organization. There's an organization I helped found uh, that deals with women in drug recovery coming out of county jail and homeless kids. Uh, I, I march with the women of Watts every year through the projects against gang violence. We take a different route every year. We stop, we light a candle where a young man or one young woman has been gunned down in gang violence. We say prayers. We try and show the local children and families that we are against violence. Um, I do things like that on a regular basis. Of course, the, the pandemic has disrupted everything. Uh, we're not totally back yet from all that, but right. hopefully our clinic will reopen soon. So let me ask you this. I'm going to leave with this thought. What's your, what's your view of what lies ahead for us in the criminal justice system? One of the things that I don't like to see that really has been bothering me lately, if I can share this with you, is the labeling of judges by um, who appointed them. Um, I think it does such a disservice to, it just, it, it renders any decision that that judge offers um, as, you know, as compromised. And um, I was always really proud of the fact that after Bush v. Gore, even though I, I didn't, you know, it was one opinion, I was always really proud of the fact, you still there? Yeah. Okay. I was always really proud of the fact that I didn't, we know what the decision was that there wasn't like rioting in the streets and there wasn't, um, you know, the country wasn't, didn't, didn't come apart at the seams. Um, but the legal system seems to have, I don't know, it, it just seems lately to have lost a little, little bit of its luster. Um, well, I think to me, the thing most troubling to me is how the media affects perceptions of what we do. Because you have endless true crime shows, TV series, films that typically don't depict criminal defense lawyers as being particularly honorable or ethical. And I think it's even more incumbent on criminal defense lawyers now to demonstrate passion, true commitment and caring and humanity in the courtroom because we have to battle perceptions of who we are and what we do and how we behave that are just not accurate and not true. And they're getting more and more voluminous. I mean, any time of day you can turn on umpteen stations and watch a true crime type show, whether based on reality or not, uh, that in my opinion depicts criminal defense lawyers as being very just tricky and shady and shallow. When the reality is we, we, we've done more to preserve civil liberties in American history than any other group I know. If you really look at the history of civil liberties in America, where freedoms began and where they came from, you will see behind every one of these principles, courageous criminal defense lawyers going against the system, going against society, going against the powers that be to make things work as they're supposed to. And we are really a group that's not well understood. And the only way we're gonna to continue to be understood in the proper way is if we would behave ethically passionately and professionally and show jurors in the courtroom the kind of people we really are. Tom, I, I couldn't have possibly scripted a better ending to my discussion with you than that. And, and that wasn't scripted at all. I'm just having a conversation with you, but I hope 
that somewhere down the road, somebody will take what you just said and will repeat it and remind um, those who are listening that um, we really aren't the, it's not like law and order where you, you look at the defense lawyer who's pulling, you know, these tricks in the courtroom and is, is labeled as sleazy. Um, we really stand in front of people and next to people. And I know like you, I've, I've heard you say to each witness in a case, I'm Tom Mazzaro, I'm with him or I'm with her. Yes. And I think you mean it. So Tom, if people wanted to find a way to learn more about what you do, where would they go? Where would somebody go on the internet or on a social media to find out more about what's happening with Tom Mesero and Mesero Law? Just Google Mesero Law Group. You'll find me. And there are articles I've written on the website and some other their information. But uh, listen, I've really enjoyed this interview. It's been great. Thanks for inviting me. Um, me too. And I just want to say it's it, for me, you know, doing this interview is like meeting, be like a, like a kid meeting Babe Ruth. So um, I put you in that, that I have that much esteem and regard for you. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy life to visit with me. Thank you so I'm, much, Metro, I'm Neil Rockheim. This is Killer Cross Examination. Thank you.